Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with Aaron Cameron. Our guest today is Adrian Araka, who is the CEO of Fitzrovia Capital. Welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So Adrian's got a pretty interesting backstory. He's lived the dream that so many of us do when you're you know, working for an institution. And uh, two and a half years ago, or a little over two years ago, he jumped out on his own. He's had a bunch of success in a very short period of time. And so we're here to, to talk about that and, and maybe inspire others to make the same leap. Yeah, before we get into it, I, I want to throw this out there. Let's, I have no idea of knowing this, but out of the number of people that try to do what you've done, what success rate do you think there is? Oh, that's a good question. Because I know, certainly, you're one of the few where I can go, that is a success. There, are, How many are there, do you think, that are not as successful? I hate to be theoretical yeah, on this, no. but what is the definition of success? Yeah, well, is it to you know keep the lights on and have your own, dictate your own schedule and have some flexibility? Yeah, I guess create, that's the good point. Create your own culture. Yeah. Or end up back at working for an institution, you know, five years later. <laughs> I think it's probably, I'm just going to throw a number out there. It's probably like 75% not successful, right? Because it is so hard to do what you do. And I'm, I'm setting us up for what we're going to talk about for the rest of this podcast. But I think it's really hard. And that's my point, ultimately. Because the dream that Adam talks about, that like we all have the dream working in commercial real estate. But it is way harder said than done, for sure. So Aaron's clearly going nowhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, Don't worry, I'm, first I'm way too, way too fearful of you know, my wife leaving me because I'm mortgaging my house to pay for, I don't know, something. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, let's go. So how did you get into commercial real estate? Let's start from the very beginning. Yeah, so I always kind of born in real estate, a lot of family in real estate in various capacities, whether it's on the investment side, the brokerage side, or on the trade side. So always like the tangibility with the asset class versus the equity markets. I was at a bent to quant and capital markets. So went to the Ivy School of Business, wanted to get into investment banking because I thought that would be a nice stepping stone to get into real estate private equity. I had a friend that uh, was doing real estate private equity at the time and thought it was a really good match between getting closer to the asset and also leveraging the quant skill set that you know I really enjoyed. So I did four years investment banking at Credit Suisse First Boston. So two years in Toronto, two years in London, England uh, during the first Boston days. Uh, in Toronto, I was in the metals and mining group, the global metals and mining group. And then I jumped to the mergers and acquisitions group uh, in London. So I was there for four years. The intention going to London was always get some international experience for a year or two, come back home. And we loved it so much, we stayed. My now wife, we were dating at the time, doing long distance for a year, and thankfully she came over. And we just had a really great group of friends. There's a Canadian contingent of you know, 50 people, you know, various connections of guys we went to, or people we went to university with, and ended up being your second family in a lot of ways. Uh, I really liked the depth of conversation and the types of people you're meeting in London is very transit city. There's people from all over the world and I just really enjoyed the lifestyle. I then uh, was approached by Apollo's real estate private equity group at the time who were looking to make a hire on the acquisitions group. Uh, and I uh, thought it was my, you know, at the time, dream job where I could, you know, get closer to the assets, get actually get into real estate and leverage the investment banking experience that I had. So I ended up joining the group. I was there for five years. They raised a one and a half billion dollar fund, uh, basically at the peak of the market in 2007. Uh, so I was very fortunate through the downturn to not only get exposed to, and I'll kind of talk about coverage and what the fund was, but not only get exposed to you know new deals, distressed deals, but also the realities around a recession and dealing 
dealing with earnout and workouts and working with banks and people that, you know, that time had really great relationships with the firm, but it's amazing in a period of time where there's a lot of anxiety and you're faced with a very significant, severe recession, how people react in those situations. So that was great. We ended up deploying about one and a half billion, the full fund while I was there. We were investing as far east as Russia down to Turkey. I was on a multifamily strategy in Germany. I did some distressed land in Spain. I was on a condo strategy in London. What was the time period so that we get a sense that 1.5 billion, like how was it, 18 months, 24 months? What were the kind of the year, what year period? So that, that was uh, 2008, uh, right to uh, 2012. So some real tough times while you were doing that. That's right. Yeah. Or opportunities to buy. Yeah, opportunities yeah. to buy. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, it's funny when you have, looking back, some of the things that you just reprice, right? I remember at the time, you know, being presented, you know, one of our colleagues presented with a sale and lease back 15 years to Sainsbury's, which is the equivalent of Loblaws in Canada. Mm-hmm. And it was a brand new logistics shed, you know, parent company guarantee, ironclad at an cap. And at the time, you know, 2008, 2009, it was, well, that's a binary bet on one covenant. What happens if they go bust? And that's a grocery, you know, covenant. That was the preeminent covenant, one of the preeminent covenants in the UK. So it's amazing looking back when the market shifts the other way, how difficult it is even, you know, looking back to make some of those calls. Mm. So that was, that was really valuable experience. So I then wanted to come back home. We had my, my daughter there, got married, had my daughter there, and we were in between funds. So which is a logical breaking point. So the way private equity works, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but you have all these kind of vested promote and it's by vintage. And if you stay through a new cycle of funds, it's very expensive to leave. You want to work through, especially if it's a good vintage fund, work through it. What do you mean by vintage fund? Can you just expand your, on that? So every four or five years, you're raising a new fund. So that would be a vintage. A lot of people in private equity say it's kind of like the wine business in a lot of ways. And so the next vintage was coming around. Uh, it was just raised. And I had to make a call whether I was going to stay another five years in, in Europe or come back home. At the time, you know, it just felt like the logical breaking point to come back home. There's really a big pull to come back home with, you know, family getting older. And it was much longer than I originally thought. So came back home and uh, had a mutual friend that was at Tricon. Said, why don't you come and, and meet the guys at Tricon? I didn't know a whole lot of real estate private equity firms in Toronto, knew of Brookfield, knew of Tricon, didn't really explore the market and got along with the management team at Tricon and joined fairly quickly. When I joined Tricon, I was uh, very involved and, and kind of led what they call Project Targo. So this was buying out a you know almost 80% interest in one of their legacy funds uh, with permanent capital, raised it on the Toronto Stock Exchange, and that allowed to bring permanent capital in the business to do other verticals and expanded to other verticals. To those verticals that they got into, I, I directly led. So I was their purposeful rental vertical in Toronto and the manufactured housing division in the U.S., uh, do you guys know what MH is or manufactured housing? So on um, think trailer parks, uh, but it's really the land lease business. Uh, so there's different spectrums of quality. Uh, we've stayed on the high end of that quality. So you walk through these subdivisions, it looks like a stick built subdivision, but you don't, actually don't own the boxes, the homes, you own the infrastructure, the dirt, and you're leasing pads to homeowners. So very low beta asset class. The income spreads were really attractive. Fetty and Freddie were very aggressive lending in that market. And we ended up building a gross asset value or portfolio to about $200 million, uh, and subsequently sold that to Blackstone. Very difficult to get scale. Uh, I thought the risk-adjusted returns were excellent, very, very strong. But the management, senior management uh, at Tricon thought it was a better use of resources to focus elsewhere. On the Tricon luxury residence side of things, which is the purposeful rental division, 
we ended up going out and buying the Selby, which is now a completed 50-story mm-hmm. rental tower at Bloor and Sherburn, and then two other assets, which is 57 Spadina, which was bought from Allied and Diamond Corp at the corner of King and Spadina. And then the last deal I did was at Summerhill, uh, the redevelopment lands, the JLL portfolio that was sold. Uh, so this is on the south side of the flagship LCBO mm-hmm. and the Five Thieves. So at the time, one of Tricon's largest pension plan investors said we were heavily invested in the U.S. and multifamily, really like the fundamentals in in Toronto. Can you guys build a platform for us? Uh, So I was tasked with doing that. And then very quickly, the board said, you know, I think you should run the development company. And, you know, I really didn't have a lot. I backed a lot of developers, but really didn't have a lot of direct development experience. So ended up doing a co-development deal with Mod Developments. So Gary Switzer, who ran the Great Golf's high-rise division in the residential side for about 20 years, and really built a great team around me. So, you know, hired a head of construction, uh, head of development, and just rolled up my sleeve for sleeves for about three years and got involved in every decision. Really kind of thought through, and I thought it gave me a, an advantage thinking about the asset class or traditional development in a very different way. You know, ask questions, why are things done a certain way? Is there a more efficient way of doing it? Is there any way... Simply you- because of your almost ignorance to the decision-making process because you were trying to learn it. That's exactly yeah. it. That's exactly it. And I just thought there's a lot of things that I learned on the investment side and the private equity side that really lend itself very well to a lot of the day-to-day decisions you make in development. You know, how do you structure a deal with a critical path trade, for example? Uh, with a what? Sorry, with a critical path trade. So what like, is, what is your, like yeah, anything that's uh, Okay, so anything that's going to impact your timelines on schedule. So for example, your foremark is a critical path trade. So you cannot do anything else until your structure's up. So really focus on how do you create alignment with some of those deals and protect your downside, give someone uh, upside so they're mutually aligned in your success. Hmm. Uh, So we ended up doing a lot of those type of deals. And I thought over time, we created a lot of value by doing that. So really invested in systems, financial reporting. Uh, There's a lot of things that when I was backing developers, I would get really frustrated, especially over in Europe, in terms of how they reported, how they looked at a problem. They weren't really analytical in how they broke down certain decisions. And so that's where I thought we could really create value. And there's so many, like I'd say, thousands of decisions that happen on each development. And being able to break it down and slowly pick up, I would say, a little arbitrage or you know pockets of value. Or, or even I, just understanding how one decision impacts other decisions or causes other decisions to be made. Like I mean, it's it, incredibly complicated. For sure. And and so the one thing I, you know, started truck on and I still talk to the guys on my team today at Fitzrovia is you have to identify the nickels and pick them off the floor. That's really, really important because that really adds up over the course of development, whether it's picking up on your schedule or allowing you to, you know, compress your overall, you know, hard costs against your budget. And you're, you know, that's really, really fundamental. So I uh, really fell in love with the asset class. I didn't really think I'd find my passion in doing it. I just thought it was a really personal asset class. I looked at you know, what was happening in the U.S. and some of the big guys like Related is really, you know, a model that I thought could lend itself really well to, you know, what I think is a very sophisticated urban landscape in Toronto. You know, I think we could bring a U.S.-centric operating model up here and I think it would resonate really well. I think you'd naturally have a competitive advantage against uh, the condo guys 
So I really fell in love with the asset class. I thought it was very personal. You know, I thought it would resonate well if we could put ourselves in the shoes of a prospective renter and really be passionate about the product that you deliver. And that gets broken down in a couple different spots. It could be the architecture, the design. It could be the social programming, which a lot of people talk about. I think very few people actually execute on because it's difficult, very, very difficult to do. It's the spatial planning. How do the suites feel? How do you train front of house staff and management? Is it more of a hospitality approach? Do you take some of the concepts that work really well in hotel and carry it over to the multifamily space? So we, you know, I thought with a, with a little TLC, you could really create a better mousetrap. And, you know, I think you overlay that with how we cater to institutions, how we break down a problem, how we underwrite a deal. We do very detailed acquisition due diligence stacks. We have very detailed monthly reports. Really be very transparent and, you know, and cater to that institutional capital that is very much circling the space. So I ended up starting, I always had this romantic vision of starting my own company. It's always been in me. My, my dad was an entrepreneur, a lot of relatives that were entrepreneurs. And so I, I thought there, you know, if I didn't do it now, you know, given I had still age in front of me and a lot of energy, it'd be very, very difficult to do it down the road. And I just thought there was a really interesting window in the market where there's, again, lots of institutional capital coming into this space. And very- who, but who are nervous because it's a, it's a riskier asset and it's not that transparent, I guess, is where, you, where you're going with this. Yeah, I, so it's a, like it's a riskier asset relative to development inherently is always risky. I would say it's in some cases less risky than the condo market, just because you could you know you have the benefit of cash flowing your way out of a, uh, out of an issue, and you're naturally more hedged with your revenue line and your construction costs versus locking in day one in a highly inflated market. But you know, I just felt like now is the time, and knew uh, the center court development guys for a while, Andrew Hoffman and Shemez Verani, and they reached out and said, "Look, if you're looking to do something in the rental space, we're looking to build out a rental division. Why don't you come, you know, uh, work with us?" And I said, "I really want to start my own." business, you know, why don't we, we've already earmarked a couple assets, why don't we co-develop those together and, you know, bring in the fees and the economics and allows me to kind of grow the platform mm-hmm. over time. And I think it was also really important to align yourself with, you know, best-in-class people. They really, in the condo market, view the asset class and their focus on execution, I'd say, very differently than a lot of people in the market. And I just thought we saw the world the same way and they'd be a really great partner and wanted to make sure that I was aligning myself with someone that very much saw the world the same way or very complimentary uh, and had a vested interest in my success. So I ended up starting a company called Fitzrovia Real Estate. We're a development and asset management company, so vertically integrated development asset management company that just focuses on the purposeful rental sector. Where'd you come up with uh, Fitzrovia? Yeah, it's a good question. A lot of people say, is there, it sounds like a Russian connection. There's totally, it's something British, isn't it? Yeah, there's no Russian connection. And it's one of the emotional things you go through when you start uh, your own business is what are you going to call it? That's really your identity going forward. <laughs> yeah. Well, especially uh, at this point, because you're all alone, right? This is... This this is the beginning of a long journey, you hope, right? Yeah. So I, I and, you're, and you're stuck with it. It's not. I mean, I guess you can change it in the future, but you it's kinda, weird if you do. You, you kind of want to get it right at the beginning. To- right? Totally agree. So I thought London was very formative on on a number of fronts. You know, personally, professionally, and really, just I still have a deep connection to my experience there, and still have a lot of very close friends there. So I wanted to pick a name that would resonate both on a B two C business consumer and, and business to business basis. Always prided ourselves at 
Tricon and some of the stuff we're doing is to go a little bit against the grain and be creative and a little more thoughtful, whether it's how you name or brand a building or again, back to execution. So started with Mayfair, which is, uh, we're living in Mayfair, which is in the West End of London. And there's a million Mayfairs out there. So that wasn't going to work. Then I really enjoyed my favorite neighborhood in London is uh, Marlebone. And Marlebone sounded like a dog treat when I tested it. Uh, <laughs> and it was very difficult to pronounce. So that wasn't going to work. And then my daughter was born in Fitzrovia and we lived in Fitzrovia. So if you know London somewhat well, it's the West End where there's a lot of action, a lot of retail, a lot of hedge funds there. So you, the, you have Piccadilly Circus in the center. On uh, the northwest corner is Marlebone. Southwest corner is Mayfair. Southeast corner is Soho. And the northeast is Fitzrovia. So we lived there for about two years and just kept coming back to the name. I thought it was really creative. It was unique. Anytime I Googled it, there was nothing uh, you know, in North America that and came you, up. And you have a personal connection to it. So there's, and, there's, and the there's emotion behind it. Absolutely. And so we ended up coming back to it and settled on it and really, really happy with the final name. I think it, it always comes up as a question as to you know, how we got there. Do you ever get Brits come up saying, oh, I lived in Fitzrovia? Uh, or not at all. No one makes the connection. What, once or twice it's come up in Toronto. No one generally makes the connection. Everyone asks, but there's been a couple of people that understood the connection. Immediately. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, let's uh, talk about the uh, the projects since then. I mean, this is uh, you, you know you went out, got your domain name, got to get a little office space. Well, yeah. Like I'm curious. So you partnered with Thundercorp guys for a couple projects, and then so now you've done it. Where do you go from there? Where did you go from there? Yeah, I, like I'll, I'll also just take a step back. Like I, I felt like I had this really romantic vision of what it would be to be an entrepreneur, mm. you know, be your own boss and kind of uh, create your own culture and put your fingerprints on the company from scratch. And I would have always thought, and I, I say this to a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs, you always overprice the risk of going out on your own and doing it. I think when, you know, you finally make that leap and it's a very vulnerable spot in a lot of ways, you will make things happen. And I think the mind is a beautiful thing and the sense of hunger and desire is a great thing. And I think eventually felt very confident in, in my ability to go out and, and build that business. I'm very fortunate to have great partners uh, in Center Court to, to support me early on. But the one thing I was really not used to is the loneliness up front and uh, you know speaking very candidly uh, you know that was a big that was a big adjustment i never appreciated you know the first 6 months 8 months looking back were very kind of difficult times in a lot of ways you lose your identity for what you're previously doing before and i'm totally opening up now but it took a while to get momentum and start kind of building that even though i had two projects that you know, we're there day one. It just takes a while to to find that team. I would have thought the capital and the deals were going to be the hardest and the people were going to be the easiest. And I would completely flip it now looking back. And I feel very fortunate. The proudest thing of all the deals that we're currently working on is the team we've assembled. By far the, the most proudest accomplishment. We had a couple misses up front, but have really brought in some really great, talented people that I'm investing, you know, heavily. Yeah, in. are you are you finding it's harder to find experience? You'd rather find the people and then give them the experience. Like, um, what's the strategy? It's exactly that. I'm I'm all about finding the person with the right DNA, the right passion, who's got a good technical skill set, and you're going to invest in them as a project. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like those are the guys that just are easier to coach. I find like that's a stereotype. 
Yeah. Not everyone's like that, but I, I find for us, it really worked well. How do you instill some loyalty? Because I mean, the challenge is always you take the two or three, four years of invest that time and then they go, okay, thanks for the experience. I'm going somewhere else now. Yeah. So a lot of it for one is establishing the vision and big culture guy. I've you know, played sports all my life, played football at Western, really big team guy. And so a lot of the principles that really you know, pulled the team together. That was really special in some of my previous experiences. I wanted to, you know, include at Fitzrovia. I think that certainly helps investing in people, having a vested interest in their success and them knowing that you're very much investing in them. And it's a big sacrifice to do that. Mm -hmm. I think that that certainly builds a lot. Finding the people with the right DNA, the guys that are, I will say this a lot. They're like, find that guy that's super passionate. Like we're not splitting atoms, you know, at the end of the day, we're not, you know, rocket scientists. Uh, but what we're doing is if you could get a guy that is always 24 hours a day thinking about and loving what they do, you, it's amazing what you're going to see them achieve in their life. I really firmly believe that. Uh, and so it's finding those guys, supporting them with you know, guys with equal passion underneath them. So it shows that you're directly investing in them and it's giving them equity upside. And I think that's the one thing that, look, I was fortunate to always have promote and performance fees and equity upside in my previous life. And I wanted to make sure everyone felt like an owner. And it's really, really important not for them to feel like employees of the team, but direct owners and, you know, fully vested in your success. And so, you know, I always think about the guys on my team, they're making hundreds of decisions a week, a month. And so for them to think like an owner versus, you know, potentially just take the easy road. And I'm, I'm not saying anyone does that, but I'm just saying you're, when you don't have that same alignment, it's easy to kind of veer off path and take the easier route. So I've, you know, allowed all my guys to co-invest in deals. There's no obligation. And I give a significant amount of my performance fees or Fitzroy's performance fees away to the team. I think the private equity guys get it well, and we've incorporated some of those principles. How have you found letting go of some of the stuff, right? You're a one-man shop and maybe give us a context of the growth. So when, when did you start? When are those first two projects and how many people are you at today? Yeah, so first two projects, we just, we hit our two, not just, hit our two-year anniversary back in August. So we currently have about 2 million square feet in development. So about 2,300 units or about 1.5 billion of AUM. We have our first two projects that complete end of next year, which is 390 Dufferin and 484 Spadina, the Waverly Hotel Silver Dollar. We are up to about 18 people in the office right now. We have an in-house construction team. We're not self-performing, but we're working with third-party construction managers in a very active way. We have an asset management platform. We're in the process of building out a property management platform. And we have in-house development and accounting and corporate finance stuff. So that's, you know, how do I... Was it, re was it relieving as you were building this team, knowing that there are other people to be able to take care of some of the stuff that you had to be thinking about before? Or is it, are you kind of having a hard time letting go? No, I, I, look, it's a good... And how does that transition work? Because I think that's probably one of the hardest parts is you're growing the entity and you got to step back at some point and say, I can't do everything. Yeah, right? so we've invested a lot in systems and frameworks without impeding the entrepreneurship and the flair and the creativity that I want everyone to bring to the table. It's uh, trust that gets over time, you very much need to pull back. I always look back at some of the frustrations I've had in the past and learn from those and make With sure micromanagers. Yeah, yeah. And, and make sure it doesn't happen going forward. I'd say we're, you know, still early days in terms of like we're still very talented people, but we, you know, we're investing in their experience. But you know, very shortly and over time, and it's already happened, you start slowly pulling yourself back and breaking down decisions into major and more minor ones and giving people a playbook, a game plan in terms of how we generally operate, what our product looks like, what are some of the decisions we make, and make sure they follow some of those themes. 
It's the is the grant the seeds of uh, an institution. If you really, if you really think about <laughs> yeah. it. Is, <laughs> well, I, 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 one last question on this theme, and then let's move on to kind of your strategy and what you're looking to do, and, and what, what it looks like in in the future. But Aaron uh, does not want to move on. No, I don't. I love this, this topic. <laughs> uh, we had I can't remember who the guest was. I, I apologize, but we had a similar story, and they I asked the question: What was the biggest surprise, or what did you end up spending most of your time on that you never thought it would be? And I'll tell you, their answer was IT. They said they had got bogged down in all sorts of kind of nonsensical IT yeah. struggles. And so as you've been going through this exercise of building out an institution, sorry, but it'll, it'll turn into that one day. What is the thing that's kind of caught you by surprise? You end up spending so much of your extra time that you don't want to be spending. Yeah, I, I'd say the management of people. I, I wouldn't say I don't want to be doing uh, or spending. It just it does chew up a lot of time. Uh, that's just the realities of of any growing business. IT have been very fortunate. Uh, there's a very talented guy at Center Court that really helped early days. A guy named Danny Chen. That in accounting, I remember the first question. I was asked was what accounting software you're going to use and you know the question is <laughs> who cares I, well or no it's just like what's out there what yeah. are the pros and cons like the answer is yardy or something it, it, try, or, yeah. trying to figure yeah. it out and I, I just remember like at the time you know when I was at Tricon you say that you ran run, you started division you ran a division and I thought the leap to being you know starting something completely from scratch you know effectively on your own was going to be you know a relatively minor jump and it's totally got the benefit of, you know, a track on great in-house counsel, you know, full-fledged corporate finance and accounting team, a huge infrastructure that you could leverage very quickly, whereas you don't necessarily have that same infrastructure around you. I definitely was fortunate uh, to have center court there, especially on a couple spots, but still early days, you're figuring a lot of stuff on your own. And I look back very fondly, although, you know, a little bit lonely, but looking back very fondly about that experience. Yeah, I bet. Well, it's a once in a lifetime, hopefully, right? So, all right, let's move on to the juicy stuff. Talk about assets and returns and strategies and yeah. all the stuff that we spend all day. This is what Adam wants to talk about. <laughs> go ahead. I'm sure you got a line of questions. I mean, you mentioned obviously you got a you know a couple of units in, in the pipeline, and I'm familiar with a couple of them. You have targeted at least one of your buildings. You know the, the luxury end of the apartment spectrum. You know, I'd love to talk about that because you know there's there's a few people in the marketplace doing it, but it's not super well developed in uh, Toronto. It might be back in London. You might see more of that than you you would have here. But when you're looking at that, specifically, this is the Silver Dollar site, which for anybody not from Toronto, I guess you'd call it fringe of the downtown core. Is that a fair assessment of uh, location? Yeah, yeah, I would say. Yeah. I, it's, yeah, the downtown core is increasingly uh, yeah. growing, but yeah, yeah, fringe, yeah. Okay. You can walk there basically from anywhere in the, in the, the core, yeah. right? Yeah. And so these are, they're, they're, they're larger units. Oh, and it's, um, sorry, and it's at Bathurst and College. Just Spadina. Sorry, right. Spadina and College, yeah. yeah. For anybody who's not familiar with the infamous Silver Dollar and infamous Waverly Hotel that uh, <laughs> Adrian tore down. So, it, what was the rationale behind going for that segment, a segment of the market, as opposed to just building your standard uh, cubes? Yeah, so I, I would say people throw around luxury as an adjective uh, that I like. What is luxury? So, what we're developing is not. This is not a Dubai four seasons, super super high end luxury. I would say it's affordable luxury. I would say it's pound for pound what looks like. A condo product that's that's built. I'd say our programming and the focus on amenities, uh, the durability around materials are very different. How we stage a suite is very different. How we host a prospective res- uh, resident or you know renter that comes through our front doors is very different. How we turn over a suite is very different. I, just based on what you're talking about, I'm assuming your your strategy is to build and hold. 
there's not a lot of flipping going on. So you're That's building right. it with the intention of holding on to this thing for long term. So you have a bit of a different approach. We are not a merchant builder. Yeah. yeah so it's a long term hold, shoulder to shoulder with our institutional capital partners. So I'd say, you know, some of the principles we very much focus around unique design features. So really, really want to be thoughtful there. We think it's really important part of our brand. How we actually program our amenities is really important. Where we place the amenities, really want to be thoughtful around a lot of that stuff. And I think we what we do on the spatial planning side, how we lay out a suite is very formulaic. And in some cases, we'll pick a you know end consumer and we have a formula as to how you know we particularly want to lay out the living rooms and the bedrooms and how they kind of interplay with one another. And we'll do a lot of mock-ups off-site to get that right. Do you have a specific yeah. example of kind of how you might approach it slightly differently than what you know we're seeing in the marketplace? Whether yeah. it's from the amenities side or from the suite layout? Yeah, I'd say the I'd say uh, unit mix or composition would be different. So our one plus dens are a big part of the condo program, and it's really treated as a cheap and cheerful second bedroom. Uh, if you actually look at the rent data, typically you see a softer rental tone. It's in reality, it doesn't look like people use it as a second bedroom, and those units are oversized. Well, I've seen some one plus dens. It's just because like the hallway was a little bit larger in one section. So there, it's a den, and you might be able to put a table there. It's like yeah, great, more thanks. of a nook than a yeah, den. Yeah, exactly. Not Totally agree. So, so I'd say that's that's we think dens are uh, no man's land in some cases. I'd say in some cases, uh, in most cases, in some cases it actually probably works if you're going after a younger family or a downsizer market. Mm-hmm. But millennials, uh, you know, I think you're oversizing the suites. And so what we would rather do, and this is a move we made at Selby, which worked really well, is we ended up dropping the dens. We reallocated that space to the living room. We ended up putting a double ensuite, so a double door on the bathroom to make sure that you know we at least supply an ensuite. But if you're hosting someone, they don't have to go through your bedroom. So you have an 8x5 or 8x9 format, depending on you know what we're looking at in terms of the bathroom. And you're giving plenty of space and plenty of access for someone you know that you're hosting to use the bathroom. And you could close up the door and still get the benefits of an ensuite when they leave. So those are t- some of the things that I'd say we pivoted away from what the condo guys do. We typically put our amenities upstairs, upstairs like top of the tower, uh, where you'd have a penthouse. Penthouses are not, we don't believe on a rent basis as linear in terms of premiums that you see on the condo side. So we thought we could amortize maybe the destruction in value by having some of your premium suites, but give the benefit to everyone in the building. And, you know, Selby, we didn't quite do it just because there's really unique features that impacted how you could lay out of that building that how you could lay out the amenities. But we don't, all of our buildings going forward really have that feature and we think it's going to be well received by the market. And that includes gym and everything? Or what do you put, just common area upstairs? What do you put Yeah, so we have a feature a rooftop pool in all of our buildings. That's a signature. Our gyms have to replace a gym membership. That's really important. A lot of people are talking about that. The, you know, the truck on guys are still doing that, which is which is great. You know, three and a half to five thousand square feet is some of our gyms. We have squat racks, lifting platforms, dumbbells up to one hundred twenty pounds. We have fully staffed virtually uh, yoga and Pilates studios. So every hour on the hour, you could do yoga and Pilates class. The programming there is really important. I have a close friend that was the ex-strength coach of the Maple Leafs. Uh, so he does all of our equipment design, all the programming that goes into the gym. We also brand them so they look like they're commercially operated, which is a unique design feature as well. And that's got to be $100 a month value, at least for a gym of that quality. I mean, uh, I'm sure everybody here is walked through an apartment building before built in the 60s and they put a gym in as an afterthought to try and uh, list it as amenity and it's you know a broom closet with uh, a couple of free weights and that's it and it's an embarrassment it's not good if you're serious about going to the gym 
that's not going to cut it. You're still have to pay for that membership elsewhere and uh, you know accommodate that. You're bang on. I think uh, I, I hate picking on the condo guys, but the, you know the dream of a beautiful rendering of a gorgeous gym and typically it gets delivered. It's undersized, under equipped. It doesn't actually replace a gym membership. So our view, less is more. If you're going to put it in a gym, make sure it replaces a gym membership. How do you go through the the algorithm of the calculations to figure out? what rent premium that demands. We do a lot of focus groups where we test. Now, all that stuff is directional. We also do a lot of revenue optimization. So we look at every lease and uh, submarket that we're developing in that gets signed within 25 square foot increments. And you want to try to find either features of the amenities or the size of those suites that kind of drive those rental tones. And you could create a bit of a story. It's all directional. It's yeah. data. What do you mean by directional? It's just, just it's not si- It's not, it's, yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. a pure science, yeah, right? Sure, it's, sure. It's, you can't just mathematically say that, of course, that's the premium. Yeah. It's, it's another, you know, five cents a foot. But you could start getting comfortable with some of the bets you're making. And I guess part of that is just learning on the go as you build these things and bring them to market and try to figure out if, if what worked and what doesn't. Yeah. That we, al- we also do a lot of R&D. So we, you know, every six to eight months, a team will go down to a big gateway market in the U.S. and we'll look at all their best-in-class product and talk to property management and look at some of these features. I don't view... In a lot of ways, the millennials that are living in Toronto any differently than Chicago, New York, or San Francisco in a lot of ways. And so you could start getting, you know, real-time feedback from people that are leasing, you know, hundreds of units. Well, not, uh, not just real-time, almost future-time because uh, the states typically, you know, runs 10 or 15 years ahead of us in terms of what's attracting tenants. In all asset classes, but apartments would be one of them for sure. Yeah, I would say we're definitely catching up quickly, but you're right. You know, I would say the revenue optimization software is is a big advantage. Some people are rolling it out here. Unfortunately, landlords are not all on the same platform like they are in the U.S. So your access to data is a little bit more limited, but we are catching up. But you're right. I think there's lots still to learn there. You know, so you've gone from uh, you know zero to 60 very quickly with a lot of units in the pipeline. And you're going to have a lot of product coming on stream in you know, a very, very short order. When you're building now a portfolio from scratch, you're not buying anything. Particularly well, with the, the within the context that you're holding these these assets for the long term. Yeah. How, how do you future proof the buildings, or what do you think about when you're putting them together that you're going to be, you know, owning these when you're old and gray? Yeah. So, well, definitely demographics are constantly changing, right? So, what's very strong in the market today may not, if you're a long term holder, it may not be there in ten years. So, we're definitely have a bias to larger, more livable suites, which I think you'll probably give some rental tone. So a bit of a discount on your rent per square foot relative to, let's say, condo product that is much more compressed. But I think long-term, it's way, it's much more defensive. You're going to have less turnover, less friction costs associated with that. Uh, and I think you're going to have a wider safety net uh, as relates to changing demographics. Uh, so that'd be one. Two, you know, we spend a lot of time here as well, is how do you stay cutting edge in terms of technology, in terms of changing consumer taste? So whether it's really unique smart locks, it's uh, a fully integrated resident portal. How do you constantly try to stay ahead of the curve in terms of what's available in the market and how do you bring that in to make someone's life a lot easier uh, and more enjoyable? So building automation energy management, things like that. We spent a lot of time debating whether it's conceptually that we're going to roll out around, you know, our entire portfolio or we're going to take, you know, one building as a test case and test it before we roll it out more broadly. And then parking, we're constantly thinking about parking. I'm concerned around we are building, you know, know, white elephants down there. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, the Expensive white elephants. Yeah, the city is adapting. We're constantly starting to think about what is the alternate use Mm -hmm. of some of that space 10 years down the road. We don't 
have a great solution yet. Right now, we're being, you know, just answering requirements under city bylaws in terms of what is required in certain cities. Tennis courts. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. Know. I don't know what it is, but we're not we're not there yet. But we're definitely thinking about it and spending the time to debate it. Yeah, and that's the harder part. I mean, the technology is one thing, but I think some of those things can be resolved, you know, in the future. But if if it's significant structural components of the building that just can never be changed. Like, how do you convert a, a three-story parking garage to tennis courts? I mean, I don't know if you can do that or not. And then another one, of course, is sort of like front lobbies and the, the way that we're, you know, people talk about drone deliveries and the amount of packaging and all that kind of stuff that you can't, you know, you, I guess you can, but it's much harder to totally convert a, a front lobby, you know, in the future. So how do, what do you think about that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, so we're definitely overcompensating for locker ratios, especially like uh, automated lockers, parcel pending, uh, we just locked up a big deal across our portfolio. We doubled up what they thought would be a sufficient ratio. Just, what do you mean by that? Uh, so they, you know, they'll guide you on, you know, 150 units. You're going to need X number of lockers. So uh, we ended up doubling that right now. I'd rather design for it today, knowing that those trends are moving to more and more penetration. People, you know, doing online shopping and requiring and more, needing more, more locker space, more yeah, more deliveries to to the residents. So we want to get in front of that as much as possible. The other thing in terms of future proofing, and it comes back to changing demographics, is we're always thinking about how do you when you lay out a floor plate, you're know, looking at the composition of those units. How do you easily fit different pieces of the puzzle together? So, for example, can you convert uh, easily two one bedrooms to a two bedroom? Mm. Can you? adjust a two-bedroom to a three-bedroom tapping in a studio. What does that look like? So we'll always look at what is your plan B in five, 10 years? How can we easily adapt to changing tastes and desires and, and, and kind of demand issues? And if we get beyond, uh, you know, is the kind of building conversation about forward thinking, you know, you've obviously made a, we'll call it a wager, but I know you probably more thought of it than just a bet, but, uh, you know, a big wager on Toronto being a market that's going to see, you know, these returns that you need to, you know, make your performance work. So what's your vision for Toronto as a whole? Why are you, why are you focusing so much attention on uh, Toronto? Yeah, I, look, I had the benefit of investing throughout the U.S. and across Europe. Toronto is just a phenomenal city. If you look at the educated workforce, it's young. There's uh, you know, no sense of entitlement, although a lot of people, older generation, will say the millennials these days, that's not the case. But on a relative basis, I, I, you know, I don't think that. You know, I think it's, it's a very strong, hungry workforce. We have a very open-door immigration policy. You know, I think that tech story is very, very interesting. I think that's going to continue to fuel growth. We're well capitalized. We have a lot of pension plan capital here and institutional capital. So I'm very bullish long term. I think we always complain about the city. I think the city is doing a pretty good job given the amount of capital and supply constraints that we do have to make sure that things are kind of working through the system. And we also have the benefit of very deep trade base relative to other markets on the construction side. So very, very bullish. It's still a very desirable, safe place to, to be and raise a family. Personally, is one of the things I was looking to you know, leave London, come back home and raise a family. I just don't, don't think there's a better place in the world than Toronto to raise a family. It's it's very dynamic. It's a very different place than the one I left, uh, you know, almost 15 years ago. And, you know, I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to continue to see major step changes in the urban fabric. And, you know, we're going to continue to be on our path. We're not there yet, but a world-class city. I like it. Makes me proud to be a Torontonian. <laughs> yeah, I'm not leaving. Yeah. I think this is about, you know, all our guests love to have you back on in two years, but uh, I think you in particular would be super interesting to have back on given you've accomplished in uh, just a short two years. It could be, uh, you know, it could be a full-blown institution in just a few more. You know, love to have you back on at some point in the future. Oh, yeah, I'd love to take the opportunity and come back on. Yeah, thank you very much for hosting me. It's uh, It's been a real pleasure. 
Yeah, no, this has been very, very interesting. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, we want to thank First National for powering the podcast and uh, you know share this episode with somebody who might be thinking about going their own. It could be an inspiring story to make them take that leap. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.